0: Amen. Well, I am Pastor Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so delighted that you are here with us this morning. Before we get started, uh, to kind of break up the ice, why don't you go ahead and say hello to your neighbor, give a handshake or a high five, pretend that you love each other. Amen, amen. Well, again, welcome to church this morning. Uh, We are so delighted that you have come to worship with us. Uh, This morning, we uh, are gonna be beginning in the Holy Week, as many have called it, at the start of Passover, where Jews would celebrate the Passover uh, and the saving of their souls and their life uh, out of Egypt. But before we do that, really quickly, if you're a first-time guest We just want to welcome you here. If this is your first time with us, we're so delighted again that you've come to join us. Uh, If you are here today, remember next week that we are going to be in the theater of the Performing Arts Center of the Smoky Mountain Performing Arts Center. We're going to be doing Easter there. That starts at 10 a.m. So make plans to be there. Invite your friends. Invite your family as we rejoice uh, in the resurrection of our Savior. So we're not going to be here next week, but we will be at the theater Also, we'll be doing baptisms there. So if you uh, have been longing to get baptized, you want to make a public profession of your faith, we are going to be doing baptisms uh, on Easter Day. So you can sign up for that on a connection card. Let us know that that's something that you want to do. Or you can come see me here at the stage and we will get that filled out for you as well. But uh, we want to celebrate what God has done through his resurrection, but also what he's doing in the life of our people And their lives as well, giving new life to them. And so as we get started this morning, again, we're going to be diving in to Mark chapter 11. So Mark chapter 11, if you have your word, I know Ben last week or the week before really rang some of you about bringing your Bibles. Um, But if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 11. And so like we mentioned before, this is the start of Holy Week as many have called it. At the end of the week, Jesus will be crucified, and then three days later, he would have risen from the dead. But to start the week, we have an interesting story uh, in scripture that all four gospels call the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. And so before we dive into that text, I, I, I wanna kind of share with you uh, what I believe is to be the importance of, of the text. Uh, I know many of us call it getting stuck in the weeds, but my nerd like mind likes to think of these things. Um, But out of 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John combined, 30 talk about the final week of Jesus' life. 30, what's one third? Also, the triumphal entry is one of two stories that is recorded by all four gospels synonymously. The other one is the feeding of the 5,000. And so 30 chapters of 89 chapters in the gospels of Jesus's life, focus on the last six to seven days. And so I'm excited to teach this to you. I think there's a lot of profound things in this text. I think often we may overlook, uh, often that we may not think has anything to do with us, given that we were not Jews of that time. Uh, But my hope and my conviction is that we would see this scripture this morning in a new light. Understand that Jesus paid the ransom not just for the Jews, but for those who would believe in him. And so let me set the text before you this morning. So Mark chapter 11, verse 1, and we're going through 11. So 1, 1, 1, 1, 1. Okay? It says this. Now... When they drew near to Jerusalem, so this is Jesus and his disciples, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back there immediately. And they went and they found a colt at the door outside the street and they untied it, just as Jesus had said. And some of those standing around them said, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? And they said to him and they said to them what Jesus had told them to let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and those who followed were shouting, "Hosanna, Hosanna, He is who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, is the, is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest." And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the 12. And so what we're going to find this morning is that what some consider a joy ride of Jesus is actually the proclamation of the prophesied Messiah. And so for Jesus, upon arriving uh, with his disciples... Before he arrived to Bethany to walk into Jerusalem, uh, when he was with his disciples before this, many events before this, all he was doing was performing miracles and performing ministry. And so Jesus has already gathered a crowd around him. The most prominent uh, uh, miracle up until this point is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so at this point, Jesus has many followers, many people, as Luke tells us, who are looking around at his works and they're saying, who is this Jesus that is coming into our place? And so Jesus, as he arrives with his disciples, more than 2.5 million Jews would have been on their way to celebrate the Passover. And so what Jesus' disciples believe is what they're doing is to celebrate Passover. For Jesus, again, this was not just some stroll in the park going to ride a Ferris wheel and eat funnel cakes. But he was here by divine appointment made by his heavenly father before the foundations of the world. And so that's important to consider because everything that our heavenly father does is purposeful. And so this divine appointment has been made for our Lord to come to Jerusalem to die. And what he wants is he desires that all of Jerusalem would know it. That Jesus would be the final and new sacrifice for his people. So as we're going to see, Jesus again was not taking a joy, but he comes to offer peace with his enemies to God by being the substitutionary death on the cross. And so I love what J.C. Ryle, who's a noted theologian and expositor, this is what he says uh, about Jesus's death. He says, let us see here one more proof of the unspeakable importance of the death of Christ. Let us treasure up his gracious sayings. Let us strive to walk in the steps of his holy life. Let us prize his intercession and let us long for his second coming, but never let us forget that the crowning fact in all that we know of Jesus Christ is his death upon the cross. From that death flows all our hopes Without that death, we should have nothing solid beneath our feet. May we prize that death more and more every year that we live. And then all our thoughts about Christ rejoice in nothing so much the great fact that he died for us. And so that's what J.C. Ryle says about this text. And so I hope that begins to permeate your minds as we look at the triumphal entry that this is, Unlike no other entry in history. But this is the arrival of our Lord. And so look with me in verse one, if you're taking notes, the first point is a faithful arrival. And so Mark one tells us now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his Disciples. So Jesus again and his disciples, they have now walked the pilgrimage to the holy city of Jerusalem. And so he stops his disciples before going to the city and he stops them at the town of Bethany. And so Bethany would have been roughly about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so this would have been a familiar place to Jesus as he would often find hospitality there by way of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who he had just raised from the dead. And so I've never been to Jerusalem, but what I imagine that this sight that Jesus and his disciples are seeing is for us to almost drive out 64 and look on that overlook. You know what I'm talking about? Out 64, like you want a standing Indian, is that overlook, right? And what you begin to see is the town of Franklin. You begin to see the lights and the buildings and the houses and the life that is happening. And so for Jesus to stop his disciples here the town of Bethany is like that, looking for us. He's looking over to the holy city. And so, this is where Jesus would have stopped himself and his disciples, do not forget, by divine appointment, divine appointment, where he would begin to fulfill prophecies as being the coming Messiah. And so, in all ways, really, the arrival, this triumphal entry, begins the countdown the last week of Jesus's life because he has come to fulfill prophecy. And so interesting fact, a little over a thousand years before King David actually fled from Jerusalem because his son Absalom overtook his throne. And now we see Jesus here a thousand years later, returning to Jerusalem and this time as a king. And so he has a faithful arrival He is good to fulfill prophecy. He is good on his word. He's not running from his calling, but he has a faithful arrival. And so read with me in verse two, it says, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord is in need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside the streets, and they untied it. And some of those standing around said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And so the question that I was asking all week is, why a colt? Why a colt? And my first observation is this: Our Lord is a humble king. Our Lord is a humble king. And so keep in mind, Jesus has purposefully chosen to announce His lordship and, and be the proclaimed promised Messiah when there was nearly 2.5 million Jews traveling to this Passover feast. And so you can just imagine a sporting event, right? When you're walking into a big auditorium or a baseball field or a football field. There's only about a hundred or so thousand. Imagine 2.5 million people walking into one place. This is where Jesus revealed himself as Lord. And so this is the perfect place to reveal the divine royalty of Jesus Christ. So again, the text begs us to ask the question, why a cult? And so the immediate and true sense is that it was to fulfill prophecy. If we're taking notes, Matthew 21 4 tells us to fulfill, Jesus did this to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And so, what was spoken by the prophets? Zechariah 9 9 tells us, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion, shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem, and behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so for Jesus, this was a symbolic action. It was a fulfilling of prophecy, and those who truly worshiped God would have known that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah by way of transportation. The cult would illuminate illuminated their minds. And so what does the cult tell us about this royal reveal? Well, for starters, it tells us, uh, what Jesus tells us is that it has never been sat upon. It is a cult, a little horse that has never been sat upon, meaning it has been, never been ridden. And so we must note that nobody ever rides the king's horse, but the king. Nobody ever rides the king's horse but the king. And so Jesus is showing us that through his divine knowledge and attention to detail, that the cult has been reserved for a king. And so why a colt? Because it's never been sat upon. It's been reserved for a king. And so what the cult also tells us is the intent in which the king was arriving the intent in which the king was arriving. There was no other king on earth like King Jesus. A Roman, a Greek, or even a Hebrew king would have ridden in on chariots of horses to overthrow the powers that be, but Jesus does not. Jesus comes humbly and lowly on a borrowed horse. On a borrowed horse. And so this tells us a lot about Jesus and his first coming in his first coming, he does not come as a conquering king of war, but he comes as a servant king. He comes as a servant king, not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And so let us observe that he did not come in a royal chariot with horses and soldiers surrounded him like kings of this world would, but but we read that he borrowed the colt that he did not even have a saddle for, but used his disciples' garments. That is our king. And this keeps in perfect step with how Jesus conducted his ministry on earth, that he never had riches of this world. When he crossed the sea of Galilee, what did he do? He borrowed a boat. When he rode into the holy city, what did he do? He borrowed a colt. When he was buried, what did he do? He borrowed a tomb our Lord never had riches of our own. And if we read the gospels carefully, we can observe that he who could feed thousands with loaves was himself hungry at times. That he who could heal the sick and the infirm was himself sometimes weary. And that he who could cast out devils with a word was himself tempted by the devil. And that he who could raise the dead as he's already proven and will prove again himself would submit to die. This is our king. We cannot explain the mystery, but we can take comfort in the thought that this is our savior, this is our Christ, one able to sympathize because he is man, but one almighty to save because he is God. This is the royal arrival of our king. In Philippians 2, 4, 6, Paul tells us, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped. This is our Lord. Paul tells us that our Lord put down his own wills and wants and ways, none of it was for selfish gain, but it was all to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, I love J.C. Ryle. He's one of my favorite expositors. And so this is what he says on the poor life of Christ. He says, the causes, excuse me, the causes which occasion much of the poverty there around us are undoubtedly very sinful. Drunkenness, extravagance, dishonesty, Idleness, which produced so much of the destruction of our world are unquestionably wrong in the sight of God. But to be born a poor man and to inherit nothing from our parents and to work with our own hands for our bread is in, or to have no land of our own, all this is not sinful at all. The honest poor man is honorable in the sight of God as the king of riches." The Lord Jesus Christ himself was poor, silver and gold. He had none. He had often nowhere to lay his head, though he was rich. Yet for our sake, he became poor. To be like him in circumstances cannot be wrong in itself. Let us do our duty in the state of our life to which God has called us to. And if he thinks fit to keep us poor, then let us be okay with that, amen. And so that's what J.C. Ryle says about the poor life of Jesus Christ, that it's not in itself sinful to be poor because our Lord was poor. And so Psalm 23 tells us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I just preached this sermon to a bunch of college students on Psalm 23. And in my study, what I found is that That portion that says I shall not want means the Lord is my shepherd. I am in need of nothing. I don't need anything because I have everything in the Lord. And it's the same thing for those today. We have everything that we need in the Lord because he is our shepherd. And the other side of this is that if you've noticed everything happening up until this point is because Jesus said it would. He's fulfilling prophecy. And what it shows me is how amazing is it to know that everything is under control by way of our Lord. Everything that is happening is under control by way of our Lord, because he has gone before us. And with his infinite knowledge and wisdom, he knows the future. He's not making this up play by play, but he is sovereign over all. None of this is By accident, but everything happening up until this point is purposeful. He knows the future because he has ordained the future. And so why is that an encouragement? Why is that an encouragement to us today? Because the leading events up until Christ's death, many things are going to happen. People are going to betray him, and they're going to crucify him. They're going to nail him to a cross, and Jesus' disciples are going to scatter. They're going to be scared. They're going to be nervous. But what they'll find after the resurrection is Jesus has everything under control. Christ is perfectly under control. If we had anything to do with it, we'd mess it up. But Jesus is at the helm. He's on the colt. He is the expected Messiah, as some would say. But moving on to verse 8, we're going to see that Jesus becomes the unexpected Messiah. And it says, many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut off from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he looked around and he left because it had been late. And so what this portion of this text begins to tell us is we begin to see a crowd of following Jesus. A crowd is now following Jesus. You can imagine the crowd is now swelling. They are now um, emphatic about Jesus. They've seen the miracles. They've seen Lazarus rise from the dead. They've seen blind men see. They've seen people walk, becoming lame, now walking. And so they are infatuated by Jesus. And if they were good scholars of the Old Testament, which I know many of them were, the cult and these signs would have been giving wonder and promise to the coming Messiah that is found in Jesus Christ. And so according to John and Luke's account of this event, multitudes had begun to follow Jesus because of the works and miracles he was performing. In their own minds, everything had begun to make sense. But then Mark tells us that people began to throw their cloaks down and so what this was, is was an ancient practice done to show respect and honor to a dignitary. And so they're identifying that this man, Jesus, this poor man from Galilee, from Nazareth, he's somebody. He's called himself Lord. He's riding in a an colt. And so when kings would uh, have a triumphal entry, people would throw their cloaks down the ground. And what they're symbolizing is, and saying is, you can step on me. I am beneath you. I am your servant. And so we see the Jewish people and even Gentiles are coming and they're saying, Jesus, we're beneath you. We want to serve you. You can step on me. You're the Messiah that's been promised for thousands of years. And we are so excited to see you. Welcome to our town. But what I want to point out is that we see here and only here is our Lord appears to drop his private, humble character by his own choice to call public attention to himself. Here, we see him deliberately make a public entry At the head of his disciples, he is voluntarily riding into the holy city, surrounded by vast amounts of multitudes of people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And what they're imagining is King David returning to his palace in triumph, like we see in 2 Samuel. That's what they are equating Jesus to, is this war horse king coming back into their place. And again, all of this was done when millions of people were gathered around the land of Jerusalem to keep Passover, all of this was making sense, so they thought, in the minds of people who knew the scriptures. And so what we see here is that people began to worship King Jesus as the promised Messiah. They began to worship him. They began to cry out to him. They began to lend themselves to him by their garments and their possessions and their things and they're excited. But Jesus, so does not so seem amused. Jesus does not seem amused because he knows that he is the unexpected Messiah. And so what do we mean by that? Let's read what Luke's account says at the end of this. He says, And when he drew near to the city, he wept over it saying, What, what, would would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes for the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you at the hem, you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. And so my question is, is why did Jesus weep? if they are welcoming him as the coming Messiah, wouldn't this make sense to his disciples? Jesus, all the miracles and prophecies, everything's making sense. They love you, they want you, they need you. Jesus, isn't this so great? And Jesus, he turns and he looks over the city and he weeps. He weeps because he says, on this day, had you known on this day the things that make for peace. So knowing all things, Jesus knows that he is the Messiah that they needed, but he's not the Messiah that they wanted. Jesus is the Messiah that they needed, but he's not the Messiah that he wanted. And why is that? Because they wanted a conquering king like David and Solomon to release them from their social and economic pressures of Rome. One that would march and wage war against the opposing forces. But Jesus is not coming that way. He's the Messiah they needed, but he's not the Messiah they wanted. And they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. That word Hosanna means liberate us. Save us now. Jesus, you're here. Liberate us. Take us out of the hands of Rome and save us. And so they wanted to be released from political oppression, but Jesus wanted to release them from the oppression of sin. Jesus wanted to release them from the oppression of sin. Jesus in all this triumphal entry did not draw a crowd to wage war, but to witness his death as the atoning sacrifice to God for the sins of the world. Jesus is not waging war, but he is bearing witness, witnessing the death of the perfect savior. And so nearly... 260,000 goats and lambs and bulls were slaughtered on this Passover. That's how we get 2.5 million people because you can have up to 10 people per goat, per lamb, per bull. But not 260,000 more would be enough to equate of one drop of the blood of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And that is what the triumphal entry is about. It's not to come in and rage war. It's not to come in and relieve you of social and economic pressures, but it's to release you from the oppression of sin. And that is why we see Jesus in this story in the days leading up as the unexpected Messiah, because he was doing something that they did not want him to do. But if they knew the scriptures, Zechariah 9 tells us, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous. He is perfect with God and having salvation is he. That is who Jesus is. It's not in the things that we do. It's not in the things that we don't do. They tried to keep the law perfectly. They tried to keep up with their sacrifices, but it was never enough. Jesus was the final atoning death to be a ransom for his life, to be a ransom for many. Righteous, being right with God and salvation is only found in Jesus. And so the question that I wanna begin to ask us this morning is Jesus is the Messiah that you need, but is Jesus the Messiah that you want? And what I often think and and, and ponder about is often we create, an image of Jesus in our own minds, an image of Jesus that we wanna worship, one who doesn't step on our toes, one who doesn't call us out, but one that we can pick up and put down, one that we can come worship when we want to and when we don't want to, one that we can kind of push to the back and box him in. But Jesus says, the Lord is in need of it. The Lord is in need of it. Jesus is revealing his identity. I am the Lord. I'm not just some good guy. I'm not just some good guy that does miracles and enjoys eating meals with you, but I am the Lord. And within that, I am your sacrifice. And what I often think is how easy is it to miss Christ? How easy is it to miss Christ? Just a few short days later, the same crowd who is rejoicing, crying, Hosanna, glory in the highest, in a few short days, would now cry, crucify, crucify, because Jesus was not the Messiah they expected, nor was he the Messiah that they wanted. How easy is it to miss Christ? You can witness his miracles. You can be fed by him. And you can even cry out to him, Hosanna, to save you, but you can still miss him. And that's my question. How do we miss Jesus? How can he be so in front of us every day, day by day, through his word, through his church? How do we miss Christ? How can you be so close to him, crying out, Hosanna, walking down the streets, ushering him in to to be your savior and you miss him? Why is that? Because the only way not to miss Christ is you must first see him on the cross. You must first see Jesus on the cross. Your view of Jesus cannot start and end with a guy of good morals or a guy to live by, but you must see and believe in Christ's death on a cross as payment for your sins. People miss Jesus because they don't see him as their savior. It's good that you see him as a friend, but do you see him as a savior? That's my implore to you. I, I was able a couple weeks ago to, to witness to a young man. He's about 20 years old. He works out the gym that I go to. And it, we've been in Bible studies here and there together. And he was asking me questions saying, hey, so what does this mean in scripture? What does Jesus mean by this? What does Paul mean by that? You know, how can I, I just wanna make a good life of myself. I wanna be successful. I wanna do what's right. I wanna be better. I wanna do better, right? He's a very driven, young, successful kid. And then as our conversation deepened and got a little stronger, I realized things were not making sense to him. And I simply said, hey, Brian, um, is it possible that you know Jesus, but you don't know him as your savior? Because all these things that you're trying to do, all these morals that you're trying to live by through scripture, none of it's making sense in your life. None of it, the spirit of it is not involved in you. And I said, is it possible that you know of him, but you don't know him as your savior? And he stopped and he pondered and he thought about it for a minute. And I said, Brian, can you tell me what Jesus did for you on the cross? And he couldn't articulate it. He couldn't make sense of it. He knew that he needed something in his life. He knew that there was a hole missing he knew that what he was doing was just beginning to be a, a pile of rubbish and it wasn't making sense. He knew all of those things. God was working in him, but what he did not have yet was Christ and his life as savior. And, and, I, and I gotta believe in a room this size, there are many of you who have never professed Christ and received Christ as your own, but also there are many of you who have been crying out Hosanna You've been witnessing his miracles. You've been a part of his stories and his feedings. But you have never seen him as your savior. We can do all of these things with Jesus. We can cry out Hosanna. We can usher him into our town. But if we don't realize what he came here to do, which is give his life as a ransom for many, for you and I, then none of it will make sense. The I love my towns that we do, the giving back, the the, the money that we give, the serving, the life groups, the coffee, all of it will make no sense if we don't realize what we are here for and say by, which is Christ Jesus. I love when Paul is in the courtyard debating back with the philosophers of his day and he's trying to use their own strategy. And then finally something realizes and it hits him and he says, wait, wait. The difference that we make, this is the message version, not the ESV. But he says, the, 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 the difference between you and I is that we preach Christ crucified. We have nothing to do with silly myths or good intentions, but we preach Christ crucified. And the triumphal entry is only an exhortation of what Jesus was coming to do to give his life as a ransom for many, a once and for all atoning sacrifice to the Lord. He had made peace with his enemies to God, the enemies meaning you and I. There is nothing we could do, would do, or will do that would ever make our lives right with God. It is only in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that you can have life with God. And so I got to believe in a room this size, there are many of you who have never personally received that invitation from Jesus. And so I just ask you to search your own hearts, search your own minds. If the Holy Spirit is uh, coming upon you right now, just saying, come to me, come to me, I beg you to do it. What I told Brian that day is, I said, Brian, you could receive Christ right now. And he looked around. And I told him what it was to receive Christ. I told him that no one would ever genuinely be saved unless they understand what's wrong with them and and that's that they are a sinner. I told him that Christ only died for one type of person and that is the sinner. And that salvation comes by believing in Christ's death on the cross for him. And he looked around and in in a good way, he said, well, that's a lot to take on. I said, it is a lot to take on. He said, I don't know if I can commit to that. And I said, Brian, the only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it possible. And so I prayed with him and he received Christ. And after we prayed, he said, I feel different. I feel different. He was crying. And he said, I feel different. I said, Brian, the Holy Spirit's upon you now you now see Jesus as your savior and not just some friend. You see Jesus as your savior, not some guy that's getting preached on by Sunday, but you see Jesus as your savior. You see Jesus on the cross. You see him dying for your sins and being the firm foundation in which you can now build your life. It's not about the money. It's not about the success. It's not about the things that you think that you can accomplish but is seeing Jesus on the cross, preaching him crucified, and then building your life upon that. If we get those out of order, what we have is a confused life. And so as we close and, and take communion, I just wanna implore you on Christ's behalf to receive him today. Admit that you are a sinner, that you have sinned before a holy God. He has come to give ransom for the sins of your life. He has come to redeem you, to make you new. But he did that through a triumphal entry indicating what he was gonna do on the cross. It was not about being a political, social Messiah, but it was about relieving the world from the oppression of sin, a weight in oppression stronger, more unbearable than we could ever imagine. John 1, 9, 13 says, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All who did receive him, he gave rights to become children of God. And so that's my implore to you. Maybe you've, you've, you've come and you've done this thing for so long. Maybe you're just hearing this for the very very first time that Jesus is not just some guy that we adhere to with good morals, but he is the savior of the world. I ask you and and just beg of you to take that on, receive that, confess your sin before him and believe that he is the final sacrifice that you needed to make your life right with God. It's in that belief, in that receiving that you have the right to become a child of God. It's nothing you can do, will do, or want to do, but it's only found in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, right now we're